on this episode of the Wild Rose Vet Podcast. I wonder if they should provide almost like uh, maybe one of their elective courses or something like that in the veterinary colleges, uh, how to provide low-cost veterinary care. I wonder if there would be like a demand or if anybody would be interested in that. No, because everybody wants to learn the new toys. But that's not... Connie... <laughs> This is the Wild Rose Vet Podcast with Dr. Savannah Howes-Smith. Today I'm joined by a very special guest. Uh, It is Nurse Connie, and she is a wonderful human being. And I've been working with and volunteering with Connie for a number of years now. And we work together in a couple of different organizations. And uh, we have done some wonderful work over the years, in my opinion. And I'm very happy to have her here today to talk about a very... uh, a very important topic that's come up lately, both in the veterinary community as well as with our clientele. Um, but before we get to that, how are you doing this morning, Connie? Oh, I am fabulous, Dr. Savannah. And, you know, it's a mutual admiration society. <laughs> We've got our own, we're each our own best fan club. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I'm really happy that you uh, are agreeing to come and talk today because the topic I want to work on today is discussing affordability and accessibility of veterinary care. Right. And that, you know, that's such an important topic, especially when we're in Canada and we don't understand um, affordability of human medicine. So when we go over to veterinary medicine where everybody has to pay out of pocket for it, it seems wild and it's sometimes out of line, but often not at all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's something what I'm really happy to see. And it feels like in the last few years, in the veterinary community, it's come under scrutiny as to whether the gold standard is always the best standard. Um, and that spectrum of care is now entering our conversations. And that's something that I've, uh, I mean, ever since I've been in veterinary school, I've always felt that spectrum of care is very appropriate. Um, and it really, it's just really refreshing the way that the perspective of spectrum of care has changed. Um, And I guess I could define what I mean by that. So spectrum of care um, is where you can offer veterinary services and medicine in a way that is cognizant of affordability as well as ability to provide the treatments that are prescribed uh, versus what's commonly called the gold standard, which is considered the best possible medical practice. Um, and I think uh, both both Connie and I were very familiar with the concept of spectrum of care uh, with the the volunteering that we that we provide. Um, I feel like AHAs is an excellent example of how we can do good medicine in an affordable way and in a way that our clients can actually participate and and um, be part of the health care that they're providing. Exactly. You know, the, the concept of gold standard all it considers is a biomedical consideration of of a medical situation. It's not talking about health. It's not talking about wellness. It's not talking about the bond we have with our animals. Mm-hmm. You know, some of our clients, in regardless of the practice, can't pill their cat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So 
you know, to say, well, if you can't pill your cat, your cat's going to die. You need to pill your cat. So then they chase their cat all around the house and under the bed and everywhere else and get scratched. The cat hates them, never wants to see them again and still gets sick and dies. Mm -hmm. So let's think of other ways we can work with our our patients and our clients Mm -hmm. to provide the best possible care for that situation. Yeah, absolutely. And because um, you're right, it's it's all it's about compliance. It's about supporting the human human animal bond, which many times that's exactly why we're there is we're supposed to support that. Right. So um, why would you prescribe something that breaks that down? <laughs> exactly. So, exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, that's all part of it, as well as um finances. Uh, it's definitely been something that's been getting uh, kind of a runaway train where, um, I mean, the medical advances that we've had in veterinary medicine in the past, like 15, 20 years have been phenomenal. And I think it's very important to recognize that that's great. Like, that's really, really good that we can do a lot of um, complicated medical procedures, a lot of a lot better diagnostics, all of these things. But I feel like we're losing a little bit how to function without all of that. (laughs) Exactly. You know, 20 years ago, animals with bad knees, they did okay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, they limped a little bit. So did people 40 Mm -hmm. years ago Mm -hmm. limp a little bit with bad knees. To do a very expensive surgery on an animal that's probably obese to start with. Otherwise, why would it have bad knees? (laughs) Well, Um, I've seen some skinny ones blow their knees out. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of times they hurt their other knee. Mm -hmm. Or the family, for whatever reason, can't provide the physiotherapy, the follow-up that's Mm -hmm. necessary. Mm -hmm. Yet, if we just give that animal some palliative care, some some medication to prevent the to, to reduce the pain, reduce the inflammation, and set up a a, a physiotherapy session that they can deal with. Mm-hmm. You know, short walks, leash walks, yep. not just yep. running around the backyard. Yep. Then that animal is going to do just fine, mm-hmm. um, and may still have a limp, but hasn't gone through a very expensive surgery that may or may not work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. and just upsets the family. The, animal and the bond. Yeah, exactly. I know. And it's and it's very freeing that that's now part of the conversation because um, not that long ago, if you mentioned those things in a veterinary circle, um, you would immediately receive a lot of negative feedback from colleagues. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> the same thing with a lot overdoing diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as, as you and I are a little bit older, well, I'm a lot older, but we're a little <laughs> bit older in terms of our experience. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with a really good history, and really good observation, Mm -hmm. maybe you don't need quite so many diagnostic procedures. Mm -hmm. One of my preceptors, uh, a fabulous veterinarian, he had access to every possible blood test and uh, diagnostic imaging and everything else. He never used it. So I asked him why. And he said, (laughs) I do a very good history and I observe the animal. And I'm always right. Mm-hmm. And he always was right. <laughs> and that's what he always tried to teach all of us is that you really have to listen mm-hmm. and you have to watch. You don't want to look at printouts of blood work. 
Yeah, I'm not treating numbers on a paper. I'm treating a patient that's in front of me. And exactly. I feel like I feel like that's a I mean it's a whole other topic, but and I'm it not is. as well I'm not as well versed in it on the human side, but I feel like that's something that's uh paralleled in that particular field. I would like yeah, to I bet, uh, it, I bet it is. I'm worried that we're heading that way because that's that's often the adage, right? Is that vet med's about 10 to 15 years behind human medicine. And I'm worried that that's the way we're trending and that's why um I'm glad that this conversation comes up now before we get really entrenched in that we're always treating just numbers <laughs> and that they get rid of uh, stethoscopes because auscultation isn't taught anymore. So I'm hoping that doesn't happen either. Um, so uh, and that's I think I wonder I wonder, you know, this is this is really philosophical stuff. I have nothing to back this up. I'm mostly just um, pontificating where I wonder if we're starting to um, see that already in our new graduates where they're not relying as heavily on their observational skills, their physical examination skills their history taking, and they're relying more on on testing. And I wonder if that's part of what's driving up the increased overall expenses in veterinary medicine. Oh, I'm, I'm sure it is. There have been some editorials on that in the, um, some of the journals about that. But, you know, the toys are much more fun. And less about the pathophysiological problem yeah. that's facing you and how does that manifest physically. Right, like I feel like right. unless we add unless we add another year to veterinary school, and I mean I'm kind of of the opinion school. we should, but again that's yeah. another unpopular opinion. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, but you know what? I think even our young vets, with time, they're learning these these skills of communication and observation mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and paying attention. It was, and you know, some of our, some of our um, wonderful instructors are doing, are teaching really well that way. I went to, when I was a tech student, I went to a, um, a continuing education session and learned in a lecture how to auscultate. I went home and listened to all my, auscultating is uh, listening with a stethoscope. Uh, and he was particularly dealing with the cardiovascular system. So the heart and the lungs and, So I went home and listened to all my animals and I discovered a heart defect in one of my dogs and ultimately, and it had been missed by so many vets, even at vet schools. And ultimately my dog was the first dog in Canada with an Amplatz canine ductal occluder in his heart. And I made a recording of his heart, the sound from my, my, my stethoscope and sent it off to a vet school that they're now using often in, uh, at another vet school. I think that story is a perfect example of the flexibility I would like to keep within veterinary medicine, because really that's, that's one of the, the best things about our profession is flexibility in that um, something as basic as a stethoscope and auscultation um, can be done. But also you can do, like you said, that very advanced procedure, because obviously most of the time people are not going for that advanced procedure. No. It's really cool that it exists and it can be done. Um, and I think what I would love to see is that I still think that there's a place for that kind of a thing. But I would like the conversation more to be what's fitting in this situation for this animal and yeah. what's the best we can do with what we have. And I, I still think I still think those types of medical advances are extremely valuable. And if somebody's motivated and wants to go for it, I love that that's available to them. I really, I guess that's what it comes down to is having a wide variety of choices and the flexibility and the level of care that we provide. Um, Exactly. Yeah. 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 In my case, I was, you know, an academic and I was dealing with other academics and we used it as a research project. (laughs) (laughs) Of course you did. (laughs) (laughs) 
one thing that I think also is we'll, we'll both be very familiar with is the role that organizations such as ours play with providing both affordability and accessibility to certain sections of the population. So Connie and I are both volunteers with an organization called Alberta Helping Animals Society, and we provide no cost to the client veterinary care. We have a stationary clinic and uh, used to have a robust house call service, but uh, we'll uh, <laughs> the pandemic changed that a little bit. <laughs> um, and uh, we provide veterinary care for people that are marginalized in terms of finances, so low income, fixed incomes, uh, people with disabilities, people with um, different types of addiction issues, mental issues, health issues of other sorts, that kind of a thing. And our need is the need is is great. Like I mean, the it's overwhelming how many people actually require access to our services, and so. I guess I just want to have a conversation about what is the role of organizations such as that within a veterinary context for providing and closing that gap of accessibility and affordability for people? Groups such as AHAs, there's also Tales of Help, Parachutes for Pets, the Marley Foundation, um, various SPCAs. These are really important for helping out people with lower incomes have uh, accept access to veterinary care. Where we're falling short is people with who are more likely the working poor. People mm, are in between mm -hmm, those mm -hmm. who can afford everything. They fall through the uh, gaps very hard. They fall through the gaps terribly. And that's where um, thinking about uh, taking a pragmatic approach to veterinary care, being able to uh, provide what works within the situation mm -hmm. um, is going to make the biggest difference. Our organizations are great for those who are desperate for veterinary care. Mm -hmm. And they also provide awareness for full service uh, for-profit veterinary services to do some pro bono work and mm -hmm. to, more importantly, to promote that they're doing um, pro bono work and just, you know, acknowledge that, yes, we will help you out, even if you are a little down on your on, on your luck right now. Don't let your animal suffer. Come in anyway. We'll mm -hmm. work something out. Oh, and this is this is a real big old can of worms I think we could open up. So I'm going to I'm just going to pop the can opener right on there. There's a big conversation about the effect that providing free veterinary services has on for profit veterinary clinics. And it's a it's an uncomfortable topic because many people, um, most veterinarians, I mean, that I've met usually aren't very business minded, but we're having to become more so. And that's because we have a lot of issues in our industry about paying our trained staff appropriately. And the problem is that money to pay our staff more comes from clients. <laughs> and so you end up with this awful conflict of interest where, um, I know I feel this all the time, where I want to provide my services to anybody that wants them. Um, and I, I would willingly do it for free. I often do it for free. And yet I go and then I work with my technicians and they have to work two jobs because they can't afford to live on a technician's salary alone. And I'm like, these are highly trained, very proficient, excellent hard workers. And they make barely more than somebody who's at a job that doesn't require more than one year of education. So I just, I don't know how to bring those two together because I want to pay my very well-trained staff a better wage, but where's the money coming from? 
I know, I know. That's that is that is a very difficult discussion. Mm-hmm. I, I just hate it when I'm working at a regular vet clinic, a regular, you know, a for-profit veterinary yeah. clinic, <laughs> and um, the vet says, "Oh, and we trim the nails, no charge." Well, I feel that sort of demeans my job. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You provided a service, one <laughs> that the owner requested, and, yeah. and so why should yeah. we not be paid for it? So, um, and that's and that's actually oddly enough, I usually tie that into my spectrum of care where um, I like the ability to um, provide top-notch like for somebody who has the funds, the means, and the desire to go for the gold standard, I love to be able to provide that. And also, I mean, it's it's going to come across maybe a little heartless, but reap some of the financial benefits of providing that level of care because I can then pay my staff appropriately. And then we can do things like give them better benefits, have better CE, they enjoy their job more, they're able to actually like live a comfortable life, hopefully. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, which is the other reason I like to keep around the more complicated uh, medical procedures because, yes, they cost more. They do tend to bring in more revenue. Um, but it, if you're targeting the right people for that, so the people, like I say, that have the financial means, the, the, the physical ability to deal with these things, um, if you can provide those services to them, maybe that will make up for the less profitable cases. We haven't talked about it a ton, but um, I actually think that this is where um, you can also fit in a conversation about veterinary financing and pet insurance. I find it's really polarizing. Some people love the idea of pet insurance. Other people hate it. And um, I think I know one of the things that I worry about with pet insurance is that we end up like the American health healthcare system where you have practitioners that are incentivized to do the most expensive stuff because it's the insurance company it's paying for it. So who cares? They make a lot of money. The insurance company is the one paying for it, not the person. And you just end up in this like nasty, I don't like that kind of climate. But the pet insurance could be the stopgap for those who are falling between the cracks. Mm, um, good point. Certainly like it's idea. not going to pay for the $10,000 orthopedic surgery, but it might help with that dental that's going to improve quality of life. Yeah. And it'll also, from uh, from the, what we were just talking about with being able to pay our support staff appropriately, I think that's one of the ways we're going to be able to do it is that we will have the people that are motivated to go ahead with these procedures, maybe don't quite have all the funds. And it, like you said, it'll be that stopgap to kind of close that so that we can charge appropriately for our services and the owner can still afford it because the blow is softened by pet insurance. The insurance companies do also have to make money. So They do. <laughs> we, <laughs> they we do, do they have do. to recognize that. I but. know, and that's why it's a double-edged sword. And I always like, it's... I always feel so torn about it because um, I, in full disclosure, my two dogs are insured. I, I have pet insurance on them. And my final decision with it was that if something happened to them where I knew that I could provide care for them, but maybe I didn't have the lump sum money available to it, I would feel awful if I couldn't pursue it. And so that was my personal reason to carry insurance. And I think that reason is going to be different for everyone. If it's to afford like the everyday kinds of things, you know, like vaccines or whatever, probably not worth it at all. Or even if, you know, let's say you could never in a million years think of spending more than like $2,000 on your dog. You probably don't need to have an insurance policy that covers up to like 50000 <laughs> 
right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and it's it's an important discussion to have with your veterinary team. Mm -hmm. Um, When we discuss pet insurance in our class at the university, um, all all these aspects come out. And it's really interesting to hear what students talk about their families or themselves having uh, pet insurance or not, and the reasons why, mm-hmm, and the, mm-hmm. the really good stories of it saved someone's life, uh, or the it was a complete waste of time. <laughs> it's like um, I said, it's very polarizing. <laughs> it is, it's very polarizing, but it's a really good conversation mm-hmm, to have mm-hmm. with your veterinary team. And that's also something, one way you can empower uh, the front staff. Mm, yep. Yep. Because I can have that discussion. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's really funny because like uh, the veterinarians at our practice are really torn about it. Um, like one of uh, one of our veterinarians, he says, you know, a savings account makes much better sense. And it's probably financially better sense to just set aside a savings account for that kind of a thing. But then I think about how many people can't even save for their own retirements. They can't save for their own kids' educations. How the heck are they going to save up for the dog surgery they might have. (laughs) Exactly. They don't. And it's more of a mindset because everybody could save that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But when you're sitting there and you have, it's a delayed gratification issue. When you're sitting there at a coffee shop and you're thinking, should I buy this $7.50 cup of coffee or should I put that aside as my weekly contribution to insurance? The immediate gratification of the cup of coffee is going to win out mm-hmm. every time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, <laughs> the, the, the you know savings plans, we know they don't work. Pet insurance can work. Yeah. In certain situations. Yeah. 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 But I, I think it's all part of that big, that overarching conversation we're having about affordability and accessibility. Exactly. So, because yeah, yeah, there's a, and then, uh, I mean, you throw in um, some veterinarians aren't comfortable providing spectrum of care. I think it really is. I wonder, I wonder, now this is just really, really going on a tangent. I wonder if they should provide almost like uh, maybe one of their elective courses or something like that in the veterinary colleges, uh, how to provide low-cost veterinary care. I wonder if there would be like a demand or if anybody would be interested in that. No, because everybody wants to learn the new toys. But that's... Connie, like this, it should like, be part of, think of the possibilities. Like, of, yeah, <laughs> it needs to be part of continuing education. Right now, we got to get the students to get fill their little heads. And you know, I'm hoping that. Um, this, this idea of spectrum of care takes off because one of the main problems with offering it, and I don't think a lot of um, pet owners recognize or, or understand this aspect of it, there is a huge stigma against veterinarians that practice spectrum of care that if any little thing goes wrong, they automatically point fingers at the vet and say, it's because you didn't do gold standard. Not that we're dealing with a complicated biologic system, not that none of us can play God, none of that. It's always the veterinarian's fault. They did not do the gold standard. Yeah, and the I think we need to do more education that the gold standard should not be the highest. It, it should not be the end all be all. You know, it's not the only answer. Because when we think of our bonded families, we need to think of the family mm-hmm. and not just the patient and the biological aspects of that patient. We mm-hmm. need to think of the whole situation. Yeah. Once we get out of that, we aren't even going to be using the words gold standard. Mm-hmm. We're going to mm-hmm. be talking about spectrum of care. Yeah. <laughs> there won't even be such a thing as gold standard. It feels so much better to say that. And it's freeing to have a good phrase because what I, I do teach that 
Uh, I've been teaching that to our Calgary students for a long time, but I've been calling it affectionately things like the silver standard. <laughs> no, yeah, I don't like that. I know, I don't like it either. And now that like I have a, <laughs> I have a better <laughs> phrase for it. But again, and like that, medicine is bronze standard. Okay, <laughs> yeah, like, and that's that's the negative mindset that is yeah. embedded in veterinary yeah. education, and yeah. it is so hard to work against. Like I have had some negative experiences when I refer cases to specialists and it comes back saying, oh, I can't believe the RDVM did this, the referring oh, vet. And yeah. that just, oh. But yeah. then I, I have to, I check myself because I think, you know what, even I have, I literally still will feel that sometimes when I am doing medicine that is not gold standard, there's still that little voice that they definitely implanted in my head, nagging and saying, you know, that's not the gold standard. You know, it could be doing better. And so working to silence that voice has also been a, a bit of a challenge. Yeah. Talk talk to your techs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because we we know the patients and we know the clients right yeah <laughs> i know you have a very good vcpr with every one of your clients and patients but you know the techs are the ones who are giving out the medication handing over the medication and talking about the side effects mm-hmm. and watching the expression on the face mm-hmm. of the client who's like i can't do that and trying to work out another alternative and you you'll get away from gold standard really quickly <laughs> oh i don't know about quickly connie it's been a, it's well, been almost a decade okay. and that little okay. nasty voice is still in the back yeah. of my head <laughs> I don't think it's ever going away. (laughs) Well, have a good rest of your day, Connie. Thanks again. See you guys. All right. See you. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Wild Rose Vet Podcast. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. And while you're at it, why not tell your friends about us? Subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you're listening to us right now. Check out the show notes to see where you can find us on social media and for more information on the Dr. Savannah Wild Rose Vet television series. The Wild Rose Vet podcast is hosted by Dr. Savannah Howe-Smith, produced by Trent Wilkie, Shirley McLean, Dylan Wirtz, Tanya Coney-Gauthier, and Valerie Oud-Marchand. Recorded by Ian Armstrong at Wolf Willow Studios, with original music by Wayne LaVallee.